Job 19. Today we work with the second scripture selected in this month-long series of truth concerning bodily resurrection, as it is uniquely seen in the pages of the Old Testament. Last time together, uh, we noted the link between uh, the doctrine of resurrection as it is uh, briefly and in a small way represented in the Old Testament scriptures, along with the developing line of messianic prophecy. Last week, we also considered the prophetic utterance of Hannah. Today, we will be considering the uniqueness of Job's early confession of bodily resurrection. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so glad this morning that you do not despise the day of small things. You tell us that we should not despise the day of small things. And today we are confronted with a small congregation and a big truth. And we pray that the big truth would dominate the hearts and minds of those that are here. That we would be able to enter in by the blessedness of thy spirit's teaching Consider the truth that is before us in the pages of thy servant Job. His testimony, his life, speaks volumes to us concerning the truth of you and your people. And Job's declaration is one of the finest declarations of hope and trust in you that we can possibly study in all the pages of the word of God. So blessed today as your people consider it. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. If you tell people in the world that your whole life is about your family, they will understand it and they will accept that from you as a good thing. If you tell the world that your life, your whole life, is about your friends. They will accept that too, and they will understand that. But if you tell the world that your life is all about God, people will not understand that. They will not readily accept that. And they will likely call you crazy or maybe even evil. Today we hear from a man named Job who in the will of God suffered far more than most people ever do and suffered horrors at least equal to the most suffering people that have ever walked this planet. Job lived in the days of the patriarchs and his horrific experiences and expression of faith played out on the earth long before Moses wrote Genesis by some 500 years. The book of Job is the oldest book of the Hebrew scriptures. I cannot 
help but think of what happened in April of 1978. I stood before my ordination council on the other side of the state, First Baptist Church of Cassidy, and while standing there, uh, was questioned of my, uh, of my pastoral peers. And of course, the, the ordination was open uh, to uh, uh, laymen from the churches and uh, our own people. And uh, one of the dear laymen from one of the other churches uh, ask a question. It went simply like this. Do you believe the Bible is in chronological order and would you please tell me why? And I said no and no thank you. <laughs> and he looked at me like he was shocked, like he didn't know that yet. And I, you know, it's terrible to find something like that out at the, at the ordination council. But our Bible is not in chronological order. And scholars agree that the oldest book in the entire Bible is this book of Job, uh, oldest book in the Old Testament, uh, and uh, predates the aspect of the writing of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We consider Job's astounding statement this morning of bodily resurrection hope. And so let's see it in its context, shall we? We'll start at verse 21. Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends. Job had some. They were of the variety, as you read the book, that he would have been better off with enemies. But nonetheless, he calls upon his friends for pity. And then he says, for the hand of God hath touched me. Job had that right. Job had a lot of problems. And his problems directly relate to the providential hand of God. He saw God as the source of problems allowed in his life. He knew nothing of what had taken place previously between God and Satan. All he knew was is that he was having a tough go of it and that he could find nothing in his soul that would that would cause him to think that it was, it was because of his sin that he was having a tough go of it before God, and so he had to rest in the providential hand of God, at this time, a very negative thing, a seemingly harmful thing in his own godly life. He says to his friends, why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? goes on to say in verse 23, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock, a memorial stone forever. Job is so sure that he does not have a problem with God personally that he would like his words to be written down and printed and distributed and then engraved in a memorial stone as testimony of his confident soul. Verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after, permit me to add one word, and though after death, that's the thought, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh 
shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins, my vital organs, be consumed within me. Father, this morning again we pray that now these words of Scripture would impact our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Job's declaration of resurrection hope preceded both Hannah and Moses chronologically. As such, it reveals an astounding understanding of God's truth in the period of the patriarchs. It grounds the New Testament declaration of Abraham's hope with historical context. Job's early expression of such a refined hope in God is so absolutely astounding that many, many, in fact, most critical theological scholars hold that he simply cannot be saying what he is plainly appearing to say in this text. He knows that his Redeemer lives and that he shall stand in the latter day on the earth. He knows that though his body is going to decay in the grave, that in his flesh he's going to see God. Wow! Hundreds of years before Moses picked up pen to write, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Hundreds more years before Christ would be revealed in the New Testament, Job speaks of resurrection, confidence, and hope in God. Now, as you would not be surprised, we are going to embrace the old, the plain, the straightforward view of Job's astounding expression uh, momentarily this morning. But first, I want you to be reminded of the dear man's life on earth uh, as it relates to the, the big picture so that these words can have greater impact upon your heart and mind as they have on mine in preparation for this Lord's Day. The first two chapters of the book tell us of the righteous man, Job, who is made to suffer Satan's unrelenting attack upon God's own invitation and permission. Unknown to Job, Satan had asserted before God's throne that the only reason Job worshipped Yahweh was because God had blessed him so much on the earth. Satan's accusation to God was the only reason that Job worships you, acts like he loves you, cares about you, is because of all the benefits you bring to him. You are Job's friend with benefits. And that's the only basis upon which he cares. Yahweh was certainly the source of Job's blessing. But Satan's assertion will be proven wrong, and we might say the hard way. The hard way was God's way, but the hard way was indeed Job's life experience. Job will prove the devil wrong. Wouldn't you like to put your head on the pillow of death having proved the devil wrong? Job accomplished that. He did not give up. He did not lose faith. 
though he greatly suffered. Uh, he would endure over an extended period of time extreme suffering. It's hard to imagine uh, uh, suffering beyond that of Job, although we know that it certainly did exist in the life of our Lord. And there are others certainly in this world that have endured such atrocities that it's hard to get your brain around them. The good commentary of Larry Walters uh, says that the seriousness and the variety of Job's suffering during the period can be classified in four categories, physical suffering, social suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering. Job suffered great pain and disease physically. Blackened skin cracks, peeling with open lesions, infested with maggots and bugs. Loss of appetite, weight, and sleep. Fever, trembling, and a rotting stench. Job looked bad. Job felt bad. Job smelled bad. If he were here, you would not want him sitting in your pew. You would not let him want him sitting anywhere near you. You talk about social distancing. <laughs> that would be the case. Job had lost, in addition, his good standing in the community. He lost his entire family of children in death. And when the wife of his youth turned against him, she bid him, saying, curse God and die. Boy, those are great words to hear from your wife. Curse God and die. Job was mocked and falsely advised by his friends. He was called foolish. He was called sinful. He was called arrogant. He was called evil. He was called stupid by his friends. <laughs> Job was emotionally drained. And the dear man was severely distressed beyond words. And on top of all of that, God was silent. In the immediate context of our passage selected this morning, Job's astounding assertion of faith in God, as read, Job's friend Bildad had accused him of wickedness and not knowing God at all. Can you imagine setting an appointment to come and see me and say to me, Pastor, I believe you're an evil man, and I don't think you know God at all. Uh, I might be a little offended at that. <laughs> but uh, that's what Job endured uh, by his friends. Uh, Job cries out for pity from his friends, verse 21, as we noted, and in that moment found none from them or from God. Job thinks about having a memorial stone engraved as a means to leave behind a testimony of his righteous suffering when once he dies, 
as he anticipates in verses 23 and 24. But then in the darkness of these earthly hours comes Job's assertion of faith in God. The dear man has no earthly hope left in any family, in any friends. Here's a guy that cannot say, my family is my world. Here's a guy that cannot say, my friends are my world. No, can't say that either. But he continues to say, God is my world. He hangs on to that thought right until the very end. He still has hope in God. Here, then, is that expectation. We begin to listen to the doctrine of this desperate man of faith concerning the capital R Redeemer. Job said, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, the word redeemer in the Hebrew, here, as it is oftentimes, is the word goel. It refers to a near-blood relative who has the right to avenge and to restore after the violation of a person in death. The kinsman as it is otherwise translated and appears in English text numerous times, that kinsman can avenge and restore the possession of a field. He can avenge and restore the possession of a farm. He can even avenge and and restore the posterity of one's family name. Job, in this moment of time, has absolutely no hope of a family redeemer, nor a friend left on earth to avenge and restore his name. Yet he has hope, redemptive hope, in one that is identified as his living, Goel. And who is this living Goel? Well, It is none other than God himself, whom Job uh, expects to see, verse 26. Uh, Job knows Yahweh as the ever-living one. He knows Yahweh as his own goel. Job Job has at the core of his uh, conviction a faith that God is his He says of God, my Redeemer, my ever-living Redeemering One, my ever-living Goel. God is the focus of Job's expectation relative to avenging and restoring. Job believes that God will avenge and restore, even though in this particular moment in time, God was, in relationship to Job, silent. That's faith. That's faith. 
Job, in the midst of his suffering, there were times when he would say out to, cry out to God, Oh, God, what are you doing to me? Why am I going through this? Why are these things happening? And there was no answer from heaven. And in spite of all the questions that he may have directed towards the Almighty, the Almighty, for a long time, just remained in relationship to Job silent. Now, you know that in the broader sense of the Bible term goel, that it is informed by the biblical account of Ruth, who was relationally redeemed by Boaz. And our sense of the biblical term is also informed by the Old Testament prophets that use the name goel in clear reference to God himself Repeatedly, In fact, like Isaiah uses the word goel for God on nine separate occasions in the book of Isaiah. Even when Job dies, he believes that his goel lives. He believes that this ever-living one will not only survive after him, but will come to his aid Does a dead guy need aid? Isn't a dead guy beyond aid? Job believed that when it was too late for the doctor and too late for the lawyer and too late for any family member or friend, Job believed it was never too late for God. God lives. He ever lives. He, thought Job, would vindicate Job's integrity. He, God, Job thought, would avenge Job's suffering in the days of earth and in the hour of death. Yahweh is the ever-living one, the maker of all things right. And at the core of Job's theology, when he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, is this idea of an ever-living Goel, an ever-living Redeemer, who will avenge and restore all things wrong during the days of life, and wrong in the hour of death. That God. Job's God, and I trust your God. You and I should be able to say with Job this morning, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Listen then to the doctrine of this desperate man of faith concerning the rise of the ruler. And I have to, be t- I have to tell you that this is the part of this particular go-through in Job 19. I preached Job 19 a number of occasions. I've never ever preach what I'm about to say to you now. I never knew it, but God caused me to focus upon a little thing, and man, I'm telling you, I didn't think I'd ever get done by this Sunday, but I'll, uh, here we are. Listen to the truth of God as ruler. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he, the Goel that lives, shall stand at the latter day, or the last day, Upon the earth, 
this ever-living Goel stands at last on the earth. The Redeemer, it could be said, is last man standing. Now what's interesting about that concept, last man standing, is that the Redeemer isn't a man. Or is he? We know Adam to be the first man sinning. And we know the second Adam to be the last man saving. And he who is the last man saving is also the last man standing. New Testament theology is clear that in Adam men die and in Christ shall men be made alive. But what did Job have in his mind as to the one who is rising and standing upon the earth to rule in the last day? It just absolutely has blown my mind in recent days that the word for earth here is not the usual. It actually is otherwise translated in the Bible more often by the word dust. As in the creation account, God made Adam from dust. Same word. And after man's sin, he would return to dust. Same word. So let me just read it that way. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the dust. The one who stands on dust. The one standing stands upon the dust to which man has returned in physical death. You with me? Job anticipates being buried. He anticipates worms eating him and his body being corrupted. We do a, a lot of things in our day uh, to uh, slow down the process of corruption. Uh, we buy caskets, we, uh, we buy vaults, we spend thousands of dollars in the process of trying to slow down uh, the corrupting process. But you understand that ultimately, even with those kind of investments made, eventually, eventually, uh, 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 we say nature, takes over the decay of the human body, the flesh goes, the bones begin to deteriorate, there might be something left here or there, but uh, ultimately there is a decaying and uh, deterioration process, and ultimately, ultimately what the Bible says is true. Uh, man was formed from dust, and to dust he returns in physical death. But here is a goel, an ever-living goel, 
who ends up on the last day standing on the very dust that has been produced by sin and death. I'm telling you, this is a thrilling thing to think about. The last man or last Adam standing on the dust of death is none other than our resurrected Lord. I do not think that Job had any concrete idea of incarnation. I do not think that Job had any concrete idea of crucifixion or resurrection as we do concerning the Lord Jesus. But he had something of the seed promise that had been made to Adam and the refined hope that we see operating in the Jewish patriarchs. Job spoke of God in terms of a man that rules over the dust of death even as he thinks about himself dying. He knows he's going to die soon. Everything in his body, everything in his mind, everything in his spirit says, you're going to the grave, buddy. And yet he has a hope, and his hope is not in his family, and his hope is not in his friends. His hope is in God, whoever lives, is living well. Likewise, stands upon the dust of death in the last day. I want to say with Luther, just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. That's what you have here. I mean, I'm telling you honestly, I'm, this week I've been yelling more in my office Crying more in my office. I mean, I've just had a good time this week. This, this week, I texted all my family. I said, this has been one of those weeks for me that I am just so overwhelmed and thankful that my entire life in ministry has been to consider and to study and to preach the Word of God. Because I'm just telling you, there isn't any thought in all the news. There isn't any thought in all America. There isn't any thought in all the world better than the thought that you're hearing this morning from the Word of the Almighty God. And to be honest, as I thought about it, I thought, boy, if ever there were 2,000 people in church, this would be the Sunday. But there aren't very many people that hear these things and get them from God. And if you do, you with me ought to be thankful, very thankful, to what God has given us insight to concerning his blessed word. But when I, when I think of Job, this guy that uh, had no clue as to what was going on during the earthly days of his sojourn. God is silent towards him, harangued by his friends, again and again and again, five friends, none of them a winner. And, uh, and, uh, and Job, just, Job just hangs on. He just clings to the Lord. Boy, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a phenomenal thing to see. And uh, I know all the critical scholars, they take these words and they just try to bust them all apart and say Job couldn't be saying what Job is clearly saying. They just say he could not be saying. He could not be. He could not have understood. He's too dumb. He's too close to, much, too close to the caveman. He's too close to the dummy. He's too close to the ignorant. He's too close to the ape uh, to have ever come to grips with such a refined and defined hope of bodily resurrection as this. But I tell you by faith in Jesus Christ, he did. He did. Long before there was a Christ, in Job's well-defined mind, he had a well-defined sense of resurrection hope. And then thirdly, this morning, just look at the doctrine of this desperate man concerning uh, the, the grand reunion. He not only anticipates his own physical death, 
and the decay of his body is buried, verse 26, yet Job also anticipated beholding God in his own flesh and at some point future, seeing God. Verse 27 clarifies this very personal anticipation. Job said, see for myself. That doesn't mean that Sherry told me. See for myself. That doesn't mean that you told me. See for myself. That is, a, that is a very personal anticipation. And then he adds to that a physical anticipation. Mine eyes shall behold. We could say my own eyes shall behold God. We know that physically when a person dies they have an ongoing sense of personal consciousness of self and God. We are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to rejoice in the truth that a believer in physical death is absent from the body and present with the Lord. But again, what did old Job have in mind when saying what he said in these verses? And though after death, my skin worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. By the way, that phrase there upon study also yields a phenomenal truth, and that is the word, and not another, likewise translate, and not as a stranger, not as another person in relationship to the person who is seen, not as just another it's speaking and emphasizing the idea of relational sight. It's the reunion at the airport when the, when the soldier returns from deployment to the arms of his wife and his family. Uh, they see each other and not as strangers. They see each other and not as others. There's others in the airport. And they see the guy coming down the, down the, the gangplank on, on, uh, with his uniform on. And they, too, might well say, thank you for your service. But the reality is uh, they look at him as just another, another soldier. But then there's people in that airport that they don't look at him as just another. They look at him as theirs. And that's what's being said here in Job. God, uh, Job says, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold, and not another. I won't see God uh, as a distant feature of creation in glorious display. I shall see my God, relational connection to God, though my reins, my inward parts, my vital organs be at this moment consumed within me. What a phenomenal statement of Hope in God. Job foresaw himself with God. And he saw himself uh, before God in body and soul following physical death. And he even gives us a time frame at last. Now, that is a very uh, uh, refined and defined faith in God. This is not blue goo. This is not some kind of a ancient, uh, cryptic uh, reference of a man fresh out of the cave. 
as if he came from something other than God's creative hand. No, this is a man of high intelligence. This is a man of, uh, of, of phenomenal insight. This is a man with a godly heart who is going through ungodly things, to be sure, in the will of God, while God is silent. And all of his hopes in father, mother, sister, brother, yea, his own life also, have just absolutely fallen right to the ground. All of Job's life uh, was becoming dust right before him. He had been brought to the very end of himself, and yet he possesses faith, a deliberate, defined, refined faith in God, the ever-living one, the God-man who stands on the last day. Nearly 50 years ago, I wrote my college music class paper on George Frederick Handel. He composed the famous oratorical Messiah in less than a month. The well-known hallelujah, hallelujah chorus is woven throughout the masterful piece, building and growing to its crescendo at the end of that glorious presentation, musically. It is so significant that George Frederick Handel specifically places before the ultimate crescendo of the Hallelujah Chorus, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Handel knew from the time of the early church fathers, Job's expression was clearly understood as referring to the believer's bodily resurrection hope. God created man to be a physical being after his own image. God the Son became a man to redeem sinful mankind. God will, as depicted in Scripture concerning those that trust in him, bring eternal life in spirit, in soul, and in body. Ours is a highly defined and refined expectation of bodily expectation, of bodily resurrection after the very bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the tomb on the third day. Our Lord has put his foot on the dust of death. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? No, the victory is Christ. He has put his foot on the dust of death. He planted the flag of victory upon his own gravesite, exactly as Job anticipated he would. I tell you, it is a phenomenal thing to realize that you and I know the one who has risen to reign 
and the promise that we shall reign with him in the day of his return. Oh, may God be loved. May God be trusted. May God be praised in this hour of public worship. Father, cause your people now to think upon the blessedness of confidence that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Certainly in regards to the days of life, but even in the hour of physical death. For even as our Lord said it to Mary and Martha, the one who believes in him shall never die. And even if he does die physically, he shall ever live. Lord, may those of us that have understanding and confidence use our lives to help others. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.